my dog will not stop scratching. Ow. <laughs> she's got fleas. She just got Do a bath and she's got Do not say that. Fleas. Do not say that. It's your fault for taking her. All right, you guys. Welcome to the 13th Floor Podcast. I'm Cece. I'm Alex. I'm James. <laughs> we threw James off. With yeah, that big ball. time. Big time. Oh, yeah. man. Uh-oh, he's not having it. We threw off. His OCD is now kicking in. Yep. The whole show's going to be thrown off now. Uh-oh. Gosh, I hope <laughs> not. James, is it your birthday the day this episode comes out? Uh, Like three days prior. Three days prior. Well, okay. Well, happy late birthday, James. Well, thank you. <laughs> and Mandy, because yeah. today's episode is devoted to Mandy, James's twin sister. Yep. Mm-hmm. And we're each going to read off 10 facts about Mandy. One. <laughs> oh man. Oh, James, what's your favorite thing about your sister? <laughs> oh man, put me on the spot here. Um, yeah, that's what I'm here for. Uh, gets all the weird references that nobody else gets. Okay. Love it. Got it. Love it. Way to go, Mandy. Mm-hmm. I'm happy you can offer that to your crazy brother, James. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, today we're talking about mummies. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on with these dead people. Mummies. James, how have you been lately? I mean, did you did you eat birthday cake on your birthday? Uh it's it's not till <laughs> <laughs> it's not till Sunday. I know, but the, when this comes out, it's already It comes out have- before. <laughs> oh. I thought that it was three days before. Oh, no. no, no. I was wondering why you said late birthday. I was like, what? Okay. All right. Well, now I'm just, I'm done. It's okay. It's okay. (laughs) It's easy to mix it up. It's easy to mix it up. Maybe, maybe we. Here, wait a minute. I've got, I've got a fix for it. James, James, (laughs) (laughs) what are you planning on doing for your birthday? Uh, Well, it falls in shark week, so I'm probably going to do shark related stuff. Oh, wow. Are wow. you going to go hunt sharks illegally off the coast of, I believe there's a lot off of the coast of South America. Which which coast? Chile, maybe. That's a big coast. Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh, James, that's illegal. Don't do that. Okay. I think I picture James on his birthday sitting down with a beautiful teapot of green tea, mm-hmm. reading a book about hammerheads. That's every day. That's every day. All right. No, what I wish, James, for you, since it's Shark Week, that you would get to watch glorious Discovery Channel Shark Week. But oh yeah, it's just not as good as it used to be. I know that's very true. Well, what's our icebreaker today, you guys? Let's talk about Shark Week. Shark Week. Yeah. What was your What's your favorite thing you've seen on Shark Week? I'll go ahead and go first. Go. So. <laughs> Actually, this isn't my favorite. This is what actually made me not like Shark Week. <laughs> oh, my God. But All right. there was a Megalon episode where they're hunting the fabled Megalon. It's Megalod- which, uh, Megalodon. Megalodon. <laughs> you're right. Me- Megalon is a Godzilla villain. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> From oh, my man. other podcast. Uh, sorry. They're hunting <laughs> the fabled Megalodon. And, you know, they're slowly tracking them. They're getting all this data. They're finding these things. And then at the very end, they see the Megalodon. They show it. And then it's like, this is a work of fiction at the end. And it's like, when did this, when did this become works of fiction? Yeah, yeah there's so a mermaid sad. one, too. It's crazy. Like, like, at this point, you could just watch a science channel. And it's just like, the science of centaurs. And it's just like, it's possible. <laughs> like, it's, it's nuts. That that was when I quit watching 
uh, Shark Week. But I used to watch it so much that we would go on spring break vacation and I would watch Shark Week instead of going to the beach. Yeah. <laughs> Alex loves sharks, you guys. It's like he dreams about them at night, every uh, night. Every night. Every night. I think that my favorite Shark Week thing ever was the episode of Mythbusters where they tried to disprove any shark theories. Like, can you really punch a shark in the face to get it to go away? Mm. I remember when they did one with Jaws. Now, I don't know if that was a Shark Week, but I remember they did a Mythbusters with Jaws. I'm sure it was a Shark Mm. Week. Are you kidding me? James, what about you? What's your answer? Um, hands down, that one episode where they go into the deep sea and you see like very peculiar sharks, um, like uh, the cookie cutter. That was awesome. Ooh. What about the goblin shark? Yeah, yeah, the goblin shark. That was a cool one too. You guys, James also dreams of sharks nightly. So yes, this is just who we are. Oh, and another tidbit: since I confused megalon with megalodon, <laughs> uh, the goblin shark was inspired Zegra in the movie Gamera versus Zegra. So wow. there you go. I could see that actually. <laughs> I could see that. Are are you guys ready to talk about mummies? I am ready. Yeah. Mummies. <laughs> mummies. Uh, James, I think that you should probably go first today. Oh, why? Yeah. He's foreboding. T- Is it sad? What? No, I'm talking about origins. <laughs> He's talking oh, about man. mummy origins. Well, yeah. the best origin stories are kind of sad. That's that's true. <laughs> Well, this, this this definitely this has some tragedy to it, um, especially since we are talking about corpses, pretty much. Yeah. Let's start by talking about what a mummy is, and then I'll get more into like why Egyptian mummies. Because even though this episode could be devoted to all mummies, when we think of mummies, we think of Egypt. Right. Um, but really, a mummy is just a corpse that's been preserved to a point where it it can last borderline indefinitely. Um, you know, some of the oldest mummies are literally in the tens of thousands of, of years. The the more common is generally in the ballpark of like a thousand to three thousand years. But yeah, they're out there. And this can happen for natural reasons. In fact, that's probably what happened that led to uh, Egyptian mummies is it's a very dry, arid area. There's a lot of sand. And if you just bury a body in the sand, and we know they used to do this, it's very likely it'll just become a mummy without any other preparation required. Hmm. Similar thing happens because of oxygen-free places like uh, peat bogs, which is where we get uh, those those bog mummies up in uh, Europe, which in those instances, it was anything but an honorable way to go. It was actually to keep anybody from ever even knowing you existed. It's usually for like criminals and stuff like that. But uh, later on, the Egyptians started using coffins and... They initially used a uh, a stone coffin, and that's where the, we get the word sarcophagus. Uh, you know, I always thought it was a weird word because sarcus means flesh and phagus means devourer. So, it's, it, you know, like looking at biology, when you see the word P-H-A-G-E, it usually means something that eats something else, like whatever it's named after. Like there's a fly called sarcophagidae, a family of flies. They eat flesh. So why would you call it a sarcophagus? And that's because the stone coffins that they originally made, they would just through osmosis pull the moisture out of a corpse and help it mummify. But then they started making mummies, uh, or making mummies, they started burying people in wood and uh, metal sarcophagi, which 
kind of funny. It defeats the whole point. It's not really a sar- it, it, We call it a sarcophagus, but it doesn't devour any of the moisture, so it doesn't preserve them. So that's when we start getting these more elaborate mummification processes. But in order to fully understand the Egyptian association with mummies, we got to go all the way back. All the way. All the way to the beginning of the universe. <gasps> so, yeah. <laughs> so, in the beginning, there was there was seemingly nothing, which this alone makes their mythology, I think, more interesting than just about any other. Because in every other mythology, there is nothing, usually. <laughs> But in yeah. this case, there's seemingly nothing except for one thing, and that is a cosmic egg. And out of this cosmic egg hatched Ra, the sun god. Ra. Now, the reason why I say almost nothing is because in this dark void, Ra came across something older than himself, which was uh, Kuk or Kek, which was a primordial chaos darkness frog in the void. Hmm. Oh my and gosh. even he was scared of him. And I, I, one of the reasons I'm pointing it out is he's making a resurgence in modern religion. Won't go too deep into that, but it, I just find that fascinating. But anyway, Ra ends up becoming the son, and he produces four children. Now, some variations on this myth have, have it a little different, but this is the more standard story. He has four children. He has Tefnut, Geb, Nut, and Shu. And uh Yeah. That alone is, well, I mean, it's just, let's pause and, and think about that. He hatches out of an egg that has no point of origin, right. which goes all the way back to whole orphism, which is an interesting study in and of itself that I'm not going to go into <laughs> because it would be a whole episode. A lot of teasers today there. Yeah, yeah, a lot of teasers. There's a, there's like 20 episodes that we could make out of things from this one. But uh, then he produces four children on his own. That's very peculiar in and of itself. They don't really elaborate on how. But it's quite a feat, right? But yeah. the important thing is that Geb and Newt end up becoming uh, in love with each other, and mm-hmm. Newt becomes the sky, and Geb becomes the earth, and he holds the sky up. Geb does, mm-hmm. and this is something we see as a commonality. Oh, by the way, the other two children became the atmosphere, but uh, or the air, if you want to look at it that way. <laughs> um, yeah, it's less important, um, but. Ra was very concerned about this, and this is something we see in a lot of other religions too. This whole Titan theme, where mm-hmm. you know you have the main god, you know the the the, the all father type deity, but they're scared that one of their children will overthrow them. So he tries to keep heaven and earth separate, Geb and Newt, but it doesn't really work, and they end up having lots of children, including Osiris. Now. Eventually, Ra does succumb to being old and feeble and maybe even senile, and Osiris does supplant him as the main deity. And then Set, the most notorious deity that I can think of, because he's the only deity I know of who is a god killer, he kills Osiris and takes his place. Well, Osiris's beloved, Isis, gathers him up. By the way, Set cuts him into lots and lots of pieces. And cast them into the Nile. Well, Isis goes and visits the god of the dead, Anubis, who we've talked in previous episodes about how canines are associated with being psychopomps, with guiding the dead to the underworld. Well, Anubis is just that. He's a jackal-headed god of the dead. And 
she comes to him for help, and he helps her gather up every bit of Osiris that was lost, except for one, his Wang Chung. <laughs> and he helps Anubis. This is, this is where it all ties together. Anubis turns Osiris into a mummy. So Osiris is the first mummy. Then he's resurrected with a golden Wang Chung that Isis forms for him. And he takes his place back as, in this case, both Lord of the Underworld, but still a chief deity. And I find that amazing because it showcases how important mummification is to the Egyptians because one of the biggest, most important deities that they worship, he's a god, king, dead mummy. Like he's a mummy god. Hmm. So he's he's resurrected, but initially he was a mummy. So he's he's a resurrected god king mummy. <laughs> That's so a mouthful. That, yeah. So that showcases how important the process is. And over time, as they they move to uh, more ornate sarcophagi that don't do the work that normal heat and sand and and stone would do, they started coming up with much more elaborate methods of producing these mummies, so that People who were important, usually the descendants of gods, which were the pharaohs, uh, would be able to live on in an afterlife uh, in relatively decent condition. Mm-hmm. So that was the main point. It usually involved taking the brain out through the nose and removing organs and putting them in jars and using a whole bunch of different uh, compounds that we don't even really fully understand or know about. It, it was a very secretive process. And the exact components we don't really have. But the whole point was to preserve people who descended from deities so that they could uh, be be in good shape in the afterlife. Yeah. And there's a, another thing that I want to just very, very shortly, I'm done really, but I just want to graze over it because I just find it really unusual. And I'd, I've seen a lot of information about it, but it, none of it's been very reliable. So I just want to talk about it for just a second. We'll probably cover this some other time, too, in the near future. But when you think of Egyptians, you know, you tend to think of, of modern uh, people who inhabit Egypt. But a disproportionate number of mummies, and this is baffling because Egypt is hot and dry and arid and equatorial. A lot of them, including Ramses II, Cleopatra, and um, the uh, Gebeline man, they were all ginger. <laughs> Really? Like, yeah, like full-blown, like, redheads. Like, like Cleopatra, like the reconstructor, she looks at Kathy Bates. What? Uh, I, yeah, it does not make sense to me. It is a fascinating thing, and I want to understand more. But, yeah, Ramses II died in 1213 B.C. Redhead. Interesting. Yeah, hmm. it's like, know uh, you know, what do they do? Walk around with flipping uh, parasols all day? Well, you know, they probably had fans. They were probably fanned off all day. Maybe those big old palm leaves. There you go. Very interesting stuff. All right. Well, James, thank you for telling us about the mummy process and how Uh important it was because it was important. And if it weren't important, Mm. we wouldn't be talking about it right now. Did you hear a dog just snarl? I did. Every time Louise makes a noise, I think it's one of you two. (laughs) (laughs) That would be. That's our our cover story, James. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Louise is sitting right here with us. Wink, wink. Okay. So. You guys, I'm going to go next, and I am going to be talking about just the the obsession with all things Egypt in the 18th and 19th centuries. But I want to start out first, you guys, by saying I'm weak. Hmm? You know what I did? 
while I was researching this topic. Go down uh, rabbit hole. I broke down, you guys, and I subscribed to National Geographic. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. To be honest, I'm actually really excited about it. It's two ninety nine a month, but I get all these things. And I read a few articles on mummies, obviously, because that's why we're here today. But if you want your subscription at National Geographic, just use the code 13th floor. No. Yeah, I was about to say, I was like, I feel like after all this Shark Week and all that, we're like Discovery and that Geo need to like fork up some cash. Dang. Well, <laughs> it was, I mean, I'm excited about it, but I read articles about mummies and I also read a really interesting article about this guy named Oscar Nelson, who it's funny you speak about, about how some of the pharaohs were redheads. But Nielsen, he is given the skull of somebody. It's technically a recreation. But he then recreates their face because he's a sculptor. Hmm. And he can figure out, like, the eye color and hair color based what? upon their DNA. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. That makes yeah. more sense. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? It is interesting. Very. Yeah. So, anyways, you guys, this week my sources are National Geographic, EgyptToday.com. Historyanswers.co.uk is an article by Nell Darby and James Hoar and atlasobscura.com, one of my favorite websites. Mm-hmm. You guys, the obsession with all things Egypt, it really kind of started in 1798. It was, and I guess what I should say is that the obsession with Egypt was actually even prior to this. People have been obsessed with mummies for a very, very long time, but. When it comes to European obsession, it was more like 1798. Because do you guys know what happened that year? No. Silence from both of you? What year? 1798. Um, I thought you said 1978. That was the year that Edgar Allan Poe was born. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Was that when Prussia invaded Egypt? I made that up. That didn't happen. It was when Napoleon <laughs> invaded Egypt. Oh. oh. Yeah. And his troops were there and they saw all these wonderful things and they're just like, whoa, Egypt. And then <laughs> so began kind of like the study of Egypt, Egyptology. Hmm. Yeah. You know, the, the Egyptians actually made mummies up until like the 1500s and then Spain invaded Egypt and they were, you know, super Catholic. And they're like, you guys aren't doing this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. But when when Egyptology kind of really became a thing, explorers all swarmed to Egypt. And unfortunately, they would just kind of like dig and find artifacts and then take them home while finders keepers like. Mm. And so mm. Egypt really, like they got, they got a bad deal. They got robbed. Makes me mm-hmm. kind of angry to think about. But yeah. in reality, even before 18th and 19th century cultures around the world were obsessed with Egyptian accomplishments and... If you look around the world, you can actually see their influence in a lot of different places. Mm. In in Europe, a lot of things have been influenced, such as the architecture mm-hmm. and artwork and jewelry. In fact, there's one big thing here in America that's influenced <laughs> by the Egyptians. Mm. You ever hear the Washington Monument? <laughs> Listen, James Giggle, he knows. I think mm. I heard. Where is it at? <laughs> Good lord. But it's just a giant obelisk. Yeah. Boom. Right up in the air. So, you guys, my research kind of centered around the stranger side of Egyptology. Keep it strange. Keep it strange. That's what we're here to do. So, I'm going to tell you guys what some of the mummies were used for. Used for? Used for, yeah. Mm. Eh, mummies were used for. I'm guessing they didn't drag a horse and carriage 
rank or just a carriage. What? <laughs> no. <laughs> Mummies were used for medicinal purposes. Mm. Yeah. It's believed that actually started in the 15th century and that people thought that mummies contained bitumen, which is this viscous substance that supposedly had healing properties, but it was really difficult to find just in nature. What was it called? Bitumen. Well, they no, they bit into human. Alex, I swear. <laughs> but other uses for bitumen as a building material and then as an adhesive. And sometimes oh. I read that it was used as a sealant in boats to prevent them from leaking. <laughs> bitumen. Oof. Oh, man. Here's- you want to have a cursed boat and make it out of like dead people. Goodness. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. I don't think that they used bitumen back in the Egyptian days. I don't think that it was like from the, the bodies of mummies. Oh, yeah, that was just how it was used back in the Egyptian day. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, today we use it in, like, asphalt. We do, yeah. Assuming it's the same substance, yeah. Yeah. But, you guys, when you ground down a mummy into a powder, and it's got all those yummy <laughs> embalming resins and oils mm. and stuff in it, it's, like, bitumen. It just becomes really, like, thick, black, tar-like substance. Mm. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. There became kind of like this black market for buying mummies, and it also actually spurred the sale of a lot of fake mummies, you guys. Because mummies, like, you can't just find them everywhere. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So people who Mummy could- knockoffs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> people who couldn't get a hold of real mummies would just DIY their own mummies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With- for, for five easy payments of $15.99, I'll show yeah. you how to make your own mummy. No, this is terrible. They would- well, sometimes they would kill people for it. Jeez. They would uh, they would do it with like criminals mm. and beggars and stuff like that. Yeah. They would, yeah, but mm. if they were going to kill the person themselves, this is per a Spanish monk named Luis de Ureta. He said that they would starve these poor people and then basically poison them. And then when they're sleeping, cut their head off. Whoa. Yeah, Alex. So don't, you, you always make jokes and then you <laughs> find out the deep, dark secret. <laughs> but yeah, they would drain the bodies fill them with spices and things and then wrap them up in hay and bury them for two weeks. And then they'd pull it out, leave it in the sun, and boom, it looks like a mummy, I guess. Oh. Yeah. What I don't get is how how did people culturally overcome the taboo of cannibalism? Like, like just because they're jerky, it's like not cannibalism? <laughs> no. Like, geez. I don't know. They... I don't know if they overcame it. I don't. I think that they were just like, all right, like this is what I got to do to heal my bruises. That's what they- <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, people would get these quote unquote mummy meds from their local apothecary because the apothecaries were the ones who kind of mixed everything. They'd either put it on their skin or they'd ingest it. They would put it like if it was a powder, they'd put it in their drinks and drink it. So that's how Egypt fell. They all turned into Wendigos. Well. <laughs> Most of the time, when people would take this medicine, they just end up getting really sick. And I can't imagine why. <laughs> but, <laughs> this corpse tea is making me ew. <laughs> oh, man. So, yeah, that was one big use of it way back in the day. Another use for mummy remains that I thought was really interesting paint. <laughs> yeah, ground up mummies made a pigment so cleverly named Mummy Brown. But the earliest use of the color has been traced back to the Renaissance, and it was said to have been used through the late 19th century. People, Insane. People slowly stopped using it because they just there just weren't enough mummies to go around. <laughs> uh, but it more so began to fall out of favor when – because I don't know if artists realize, like, it's called Mummy Brown. 
I don't think they realized that mummies were in it. <laughs> but when they started to find um, out what it, what was in it, they're like, oh, you know what? I might not want to use this. So this one artist I read somewhere that uh, Edward Byrne Jones, I think he was French, but he is said to have buried his mummy brown paints ceremonially in his garden when he learned of their origin. Mm. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, but according to Smithsonian Magazine, mummy brown paint was actually manufactured through... 1964. Wait, with actual mummies Whoa. or just with that color? No, that that mummies. <clears throat> mummies. So I can probably Jeez. still get my hands on a haunted pale paint. Yeah, isn't it? It's nuts. That just blows my yeah. mind. You wouldn't know how to get cursed. Imagine. Cover your walls yeah. and <laughs> Imagine being believed to be descended from gods, being a king over a nation, revered by people, given... A sacred burial ceremony, only to be like some dandy's wall paint. Yeah, isn't like it insane? Thousands of years later, and it was more <laughs> like it was more like the artistic kind of paintings, like people would paint. Oh, and there well, were some really. At least there's that. Yeah, <laughs> at least it wasn't like HGTV. Paint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was not HGTV paint, but it's it's upsetting, like to think that these poor people, like, can you imagine, like that being where you end up? Just, I'm sorry, it upsets <laughs> me. You guys are over here giggling like little (laughs) children. It's it's deeply upsetting and also kind of funny. All right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Another use. Mummies were also used as ornaments around the house. (laughs) How sophisticated it must have been to have a mummified corpse sitting in your study. Can you imagine? No. Yeah, some people would even put them in their bedrooms, which I find highly okay, upsetting. No. That's that's pretty metal, I gotta say. <laughs> that's awesome. And uh, some people would leave little mummy hands and appendages on their desks. I imagine them being used as paperweights. Like <laughs> I, I would just move them around the house to like scare people, kind of like elf on a shelf. But oh my gosh, <laughs> a mummy! You guys are upsetting me with this research. Okay, the next thing: selling seeds from mummies, mummy wheat. What? Yeah. That's what I call it. Explorers would, they would go into these Egyptian tombs and they would find like old ancient wheat or they would sometimes find it kind of like in the wrappings of mummies. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so they would sell it. And in Europe in the 18th and 19th century, some scientists thought you could plant the seeds and then they grow Mm -hmm. food and stuff and wheat. Interesting. Yeah. This one man named Martin Tupper, he was all about the mummy wheat, you guys. He claimed to grow quite a bit of produce from the seeds, including corn. And yeah, he said he grew corn. No. And he supposedly presented a mummy corn to Prince Albert. He said, hey, here you go, sir. Delicious cob. But Nonsense. <laughs> yeah, whether it, was, oh, whether it was real mummy seeds or wheat or whatever, mm. uh, it's, you know, it's Probably not, because it was disproven in an experiment yeah. in 1897 by the Royal Botanic Garden. Uh, they tried to grow it, and they said, this, listen, this seed is not fertile. It's not going to grow anything. Yeah. Not, well, not only that, like, I know that the Brits use the word corn. It's where we get the word corn to, like, mean any grain. But if it's flipping maize, that originated in South America. Yep. And so, like, yeah, if he was telling the truth, we'd have to rewrite the history books. Yeah. So, yeah. Get a pen out. (laughs) All right. (laughs) With some mummy ink. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. The last little Victorian mummy craze I'm going to talk about before I hand the torch off to Alex so that he can walk through the mummy tomb. I was going to say, I was trying to think of a way to work that in. Good job. Yeah. Public Mm. mummy unwrappings, you guys. 
Mm. These were wicked popular for a while, especially in the 1830s. Mm-hmm. But this guy named Thomas Pettigrew, I always want to say Peter Pettigrew, but you guys. Yeah, I was thinking yeah, that. Actually. He was not a Harry Potter character. This was Thomas Pettigrew, a surgeon. And he was kind of known as the person who made public mummy unwrappings a popular hip mm-hmm. spectacle for everyone to go and watch. And there was another Weird. another um, guy who also did it. But Pettigrew, they, I mean, there were a lot of people who did these unwrappings, usually with mummies from private collections. But Pettigrew, he especially loved finding little trinkets that were wrapped up in the deceased's body. He would be like, oh, look, you guys, it's a scarab bracelet. Jeez. Yeah. And the, like it's a box of cereal. Yeah. A cracker jack. Yeah, and the crowd would ooh and ah and gasp because they'd probably never seen anything like that before. But apparently I read somewhere that Pettigrew got a little less showy with these unwrappings when he came across a mummy who had a bone tumor. And that just kind of something clicked in his mind and he was like, oh, this was actually a person. And so Mm. he, I think that he still did his public mummy unwrappings after that, but he was a little bit more like scientific about it. Like, oh, I'm not going to. Interesting. Yeah. But he's still not a great guy, you guys. He, oh. uh, yeah, don't go cheering for him right now. Because <laughs> uh, he, a lot of his research was trying to prove that the Egyptians were Caucasian and not African origin at all. Mm, that's a good devotion of time. Yeah. <laughs> Studied their cranium sizes. Oh, boy. Yeah. So, hmm. anyways. That's, that's problematic. That's just some of the obsession. Oh, wow. That was a mummy roar that a you may have roar. heard. All right. Well, before I get into mine, which is the curse of the mummy, I did want to drop one quick factoid that would not have fit at the end, really. But we all know the common myth of the place that keeps the mummies, the pyramids. Yeah, the pyramids. Right? That they're built by 100,000 slaves. But actually, according to a lot of evidence within the last few years, a lot of people don't know that they actually found timesheets, essentially, really? for uh, workers to come in and out. And one thing you don't do for slaves is give them timesheets. Yeah. Clock in yeah. and clock out. So they're actually thinking that it had 5,000 permanent employees that were salaried. <laughs> wow. And 20,000 temporary workers. I guess they kind of rotated in and out. But <laughs> they actually think that it was made by 25,000 people. That were yeah. paid. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They I paid them in beer. <laughs> they yeah, did actually Pharaoh drink James. beer. <laughs> but on to my curse, my actual topic. I just thought that was fascinating, and I wanted to teach everybody something mm. new. So the curse of a mummy is something a lot of people are familiar with. I know CC. I asked her what she thought curses came from, or or what what she had been taught. She said in high school that they had talked about. King Tutankhamun's tomb. The the discovery of his tomb in 1922 was what caused the rumor of the Egyptian curse to spread far and wide. Yeah, because they mm. they opened that tomb that year, and or they opened it in 1923. They got a peek in in 1922. 1923, they opened it up, and several people started to die. Lord Carnarvon, who had funded the expedition, died of Blood poisoning. Mm. Now, the only problem is only six of the 26 people that were at the tomb when it opened died within 10 years. 
So <laughs> it's not that creepy. And the guy that actually opened the tomb, uh, Howard Carter, he didn't die for over 20 years later. <laughs> Interesting. So it's a little iffy on if they actually got cursed or not. Um, bad luck. Yeah. So one of the common misconceptions here is that the curse started here because it was an international sensation. The world the world over was so excited to see the treasures inside the tomb. So everyone was hearing about a whole bunch of men breaking into a tomb and disturbing a dead body, which yeah. is pretty good cause for the start of a rumor. But the, actually, all those events are misconceptions about where the curse actually started. And it actually started over 100 years earlier during, CC. this is what National Geographic called it, my source, a striptease in London. Striptease in London? It's going right into mm-hmm. your topic. What? Yeah. Now, while it sounds titillating, as you said, Cece, <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite as exciting as you might think. And it's actually really gross. It's the unwrapping of the bodies that you were talking yes. about. It turns out that a lot of the people watching it were nonfiction writers. Oh. And they that's where they a lot of them came up with the idea of, oh, which would make sense. You're seeing a body being desecrated on a stage. Yeah. Why? I mean, it's still a taboo even back then to dig up bodies. <laughs> it wasn't a good thing. So it doesn't, it's not that much of a leap to think that these mummies are probably cursing the people that are Revealing that beautiful leathery skin. (laughs) So, uh, so they they started telling these tales, and one that was really interesting to me was that the author of Little Women, Louisa May Alcott, actually wrote a story about the mummy's curse in 1868. Ooh, yeah. So almost sixty, a little less than sixty years before Tutankhamun's discovery. Discovery. Yeah. So she and apparently that story is very not well known. So go look it up, read it. Get a uh, support supporter. <laughs> uh, I'll I'll mm-hmm. read it. Yeah. And also I did not know there were sequels to Little Women. So I learned that today as <laughs> oh, well. <yeah. laughs> is that what you gasped at when you were doing your research? Uh that was one of the things. <laughs> so Mm-mm. a more another possible explanation for the curse. Could go back, maybe, oh, you know, back to when they were actually creating these tombs, where they were writing explicitly that you might die if you go in here, curse. Yeah. (laughs) You know, of course you would do that, though, but to keep grave robbers away and that type of thing. Yeah, and these places did get robbed a lot. Yeah, so why wouldn't you write curse? So, you know, that could be a place where it started, but they also think that there's actually... A small but possible biological reason why people think curses All are the here. bacterias. Yeah, there's a lot of pathogens that can be dangerous to people, but when they go in there, mm. and they think that Lord Carnivan may have had a weakened immune system when he went in, so they think they've they have documented that Aspergillus niger and Aspergillus flavus. Uh, which can cause congestion and bleeding in the lungs, are present in a lot of these tombs. As well as, I don't know what this is, but it's a bacteria called Pseudomonas and Staphylococcus, which can also be found on the tomb walls. So they're like brushing off the hieroglyphics and they're looking. Right. So it's possible for them to get it, but most scientists say no. (laughs) 
bro. It's highly unlikely. And they said that actually Egypt at the time was probably so dirty that it was actually more dangerous to be out of the tombs than in the tombs. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Get that sun poisoning. There you go. So they thought some people try to say that that's the reason for the blood poisoning that killed Lord Carnivon, but it, it doesn't quite make a lot of sense. So it looks like the origins are a little bit of a mystery, but really it looks like maybe the titillating strip tease, as National Geographic put it, is... I feel like I would just be so... I would feel so guilty if I unwrapped a mummy. Oh, I would too. But we have TV. They didn't have TV back then. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently it was a lot a thing that a lot of nobles did. Like the nobility would go, like it was yeah. a party party oh. thing, party trick. Like, oh, we've got a mummy here. Let's unwrap it, and then everyone would go, ooh, mother, the daily mm. mummy has arrived. Well, there was yeah, there was. I saw an invitation. It was a picture of an invitation. It was like, please attend our mummy unwrapping at half past two. That's I was horrifying. like, oh my god, that's pretty bad. Man, that's too early for a mummy unwrapping. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man! Well, you guys, I think that's that's our mummies episode, yeah. our first mummies, because you know there's going to be yeah. more of this. The mummies will return. Mm. Yeah, the mummy <laughs> returns. Yeah, the mummy returns. <laughs> I'm ready for some announcements. Okay, well, I just want to yeah. I just want to give shout outs to our different listeners around the globe. Because yeah. I didn't do it. I haven't done it for a couple of weeks. But today we're going to give a shout out to the Netherlands. Oh. Hi, Netherlands! Thank you for tuning in. And here in the U.S. I want to give a special shout out to South Carolina because you guys have been our most downloaded state so far this month. And we're very, I mean, mm. we're very early into August. We are very but, early into August, but yeah. Sup, South Carolina. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, Sup, South exciting. Carolina. We're still working on merch. Oh, merch. Yep. Merch. Yeah, we're working on it. And Alex, I bought a new shirt today. You want to see it? Uh, yeah, it's gonna be really useful in a podcast. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell everybody. Look, look what it says. What does it say, Alex? Overthinker. It says overthinker. I'll post a picture <laughs> of it on our Instagram. If you don't follow us on Instagram, you can do so at Thirteen Floor Podcast. If you have a topic you want to submit, James, where can they send their topics? They can send their topics to either the thirteenthfloor.com, to our Twitter, to our Facebook. Or they could just email us at 13thfloorpodcast at gmail.com. That's it, James. That was beautifully said. Beautifully said. And just to be clear, that shirt that came in over Thinker is not one of the merch ideas. No, it's not. Just in case. No. (laughs) I I bought that from a wonderful little boutique called Whiskey and Lace. So check them out. Okay, let me me go get the topic vase. Oh, okay. I'll go ahead and do it early. Uh, Our music is... By Grant Cook, you can find his music on Spotify, Amazon Music, YouTube Music, anywhere you listen to music. Yeah. I designed us a new laptop sticker for the merch. Oh, a new laptop yeah, it's sticker. Gonna be, it's, pr- it's pretty. Oh, I can't, I'm excited to see it. Ooh. All right, Alex. Who's it? Draw from the box. What are we talking about next This week? thing is getting more and more full. I know. Isn't it great? Thank you to everybody who submitted topics, by the way. Oh, Interesting. Oh, next week, we are talking about war conspiracies. Oh. This was submitted to us by Skip. Okay. Well, Skip, Skip. thank you for submitting your topic. Oh, it's going to be a dark episode. All right, you guys. Yeah. (laughs) James is going to love it. Okay. All right. Well, I know, Alex, you did the music. Until next time, you guys, I guess that you can. (laughs) 
keep it strange. Yeah, I, I was I was gonna say something. I was gonna say something. What do you mean? Oh man. Gwenny, I need you to say something into the microphone today, okay? Our mother and the doula. Wrong, wrong podcast, but that was very good. Gwenny, it's our co-host James and his sister Mandy's birthday. I was wondering, can you sing them happy birthday? Mm-mm. <laughs> Just, can you say Godzilla? Godzilla! Can you say Mothra? Mothra! Can you say Gamera? Gamera! Can you say happy birthday, James? Happy birthday, James! Can you say happy birthday, Mandy? Happy birthday, Mandy! Say love you. <laughs>